Seeing a family be reunited by God is such a beautiful thing. Even though Jacob didn't believe his sons when he told them that Joseph was alive, he made the leap of faith and took his whole family down to Egypt. In this episode, we'll see the once broken hearted be reunited with his favorite son. And Jacob doesn't forget to make sure that the rest of his brothers know that he is the favorite son either. Welcome to the History of the Bible Podcast. Episode 15, Back Together Again. In this episode, we'll be reading chapters 46 through 50 in Genesis. After finally being convinced that his son was alive, Jacob decided to move his whole family down to Egypt. However, along the way in Beersheba, it was a well that Abraham and later on Isaac entered into a covenant with Abimelech to do no harm to each other's descendants. Here he would offer a sacrifice to God, and God would come to Jacob in a vision during the night. In this vision, God would call out to Jacob, to which he would reply, Here I am. God would then tell Jacob not to be afraid to go down into Egypt because the Lord would be with him and make Jacob a great nation while he was there. He then tells Jacob that he would bring him out and that Joseph would close his eyes. When God told Jacob that he would bring him out of Egypt, he was referring to Jacob's descendants, not Jacob himself. Joseph would be the one to close Jacob's eyes. In Jewish and Greek traditions, it was the duty of those closest to the one that had died to close their eyes or to bury them. Therefore, for God to say that Joseph would be the one to close his eyes would make sense because he was the most beloved son. It was also a way that God conveyed the message to Jacob that he would die in peace, surrounded by his family. If Jacob had known the promises that were given to his father, which were also given to him, he would have known that the land of Canaan was to be his family's inheritance, not Egypt. He probably also knew the word that was given to his grandfather, Abraham, about being slaves in a land that is not their own, and that this could very well be the beginning of that enslavement. Therefore, there may have been some fear in Jacob's heart as he began to make his way towards Egypt. And with getting the go-ahead from God, Jacob and his whole family packed up their possessions and herds and moved down to Egypt. Now those that went down with Jacob were his sons and their families. However, there has been much debate on how many people went down to Egypt. Reuben, the oldest son, ended up having four sons in total. Simeon had six sons. Levi had three sons. Judah has five sons total. He would have three sons with his wife. However, two of them would die, which left Tamar a widow. The other two sons would be born to him through his daughter-in-law, Tamar, when he thought she was just a temple prostitute. Therefore, only three of his sons would live on to have any descendants. It does also mention that one of Judah's sons would have two sons of his own. Therefore, Judah would have five sons, but two would die and two grandsons. Issachar has four sons. Zebulun has three sons. In Genesis 46 verse 15, it says that those that were born of Leah, including their daughter Dinah, together numbered 33 people. That group would include six sons of Jacob, 25 grandsons, and two great-grandsons. However, the thing comes up that only 32 names are mentioned, but the Bible says that there were 33. There are a couple of different things that could possibly explain this. The first is that in Genesis 46 verse 15, it says that altogether Leah's sons and daughters, daughters being plural. Although she isn't mentioned by name, she would be the missing person, meaning that Dinah had a sister. 
The others have suggested that the list of descendants born of Leah originally had Ur and Onan in the list. Ur and Onan were Judah's first two born sons that the Lord had killed after marrying Tamar. Because they were on the list of descendants, that would equal 33, with Dinah excluded. This would make the mentioning of Dinah and the word daughters as pointless. Another thought is that the 33 people excluded Ur and Onan altogether and counted both Dinah and Jacob in the tally to make 33. From Leah's maidservant, Zelpha, would be born two sons, Gad and Asher. Gad has seven sons, while Asher has four sons as well as a daughter named Sarah. It also mentions that one of Asher's sons, Bariah, has two sons of his own as well named Eber and Malkiel. These two would be the grandsons of Asher and the great-grandsons of Jacob. In Genesis 46 verse 18, it says that those from Zelpha were altogether 16 different people, which included two sons of Jacob, 11 grandsons, and two great-grandsons, as well as Zelpha herself. The sons of Rachel would be Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph only has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, that would be born to him in Egypt. It says in Genesis 46 verse 21 that Benjamin has ten sons. However, in Numbers 26 verse 38 through 41, it says that Benjamin has five sons and then two grandsons, making a total of seven. But then in 1 Chronicles 7 verse 6 through 12, it says that Benjamin has three sons and then many grandsons, as well as seven great-grandsons. But earlier in 1 Chronicles chapter 8 verse 1 through 28, it says that Benjamin has five sons. The Greek translation of the Bible says that Benjamin only had three sons, six grandsons, and a great-grandson. Because there is no Hebrew word for grandson, it often refers to them as sons. Those that came from Jacob and Rachel were 14. This would include Joseph and his two sons, as well as Benjamin and his ten descendants. The sons of Bilah were Dan and Naphtali. Dan only had one son. Naphtali had four sons. Those of Billah would be seven, which included Dan, Naphtali, and their sons. The total number of people would be seventy, that is not including any wives, only the descendants of Jacob and Jacob himself. In Genesis 46 verse 26, it says that there were sixty-six people. This number would not include Jacob, Joseph, or Joseph's two sons. However, in Acts 7 verse 14, when Stephen was about to be stoned for his faith, he says that 75 people went to Egypt. This is not a contradiction in the Bible whatsoever, but just a different way of counting the people. The Hebrew Bible says in three different areas that it was 70 people that went down to Egypt. In Genesis 46 verse 27, Deuteronomy 10 verse 22, and Exodus 1 verse 1. However, the Greek Bible says that it was 75 people that went down to Egypt. Stephen himself was a Hellenist, which was a Jew that was born in another country that spoke Greek. The name Stephen itself is a Greek name. Therefore, it was most likely that Stephen would read from the Greek Bible that says there were 75 people that went down to Egypt. Again, this is not a contradiction. In the Greek Bible, there are five more people counted in comparison to the Hebrew Bible. The Greek Bible counts the five descendants of Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. The Hebrew translation only mentions Manasseh and Ephraim as the descendants of Joseph, whereas the Greek translation actually mentions the grandsons and great-grandsons of Joseph, Machir and Gilead from Ephraim, from Manasseh, Sudalam, Tom, and Edom.
These five descendants are also mentioned in Numbers 26, in both the Greek and Hebrew translation of the Bible. Therefore, both 70 and 75 is a correct number. One is just counting more people than the other. Now with this list, it needs to be mentioned that not all the descendants of Jacob went down with him. Some were actually born in Egypt. For example, Benjamin was probably no older than 30 when he went down to Egypt, and most scholars place him around the age of 23 or 24. To have 10 descendants by the age of 24 would be a little unrealistic. Also, the same would go for Perez, the son of Judah, and his two sons that are counted in the descendants of Jacob. He would not be old enough to have children of his own yet, as he would have been around the age of 11. In the Greek translation of the Bible, Joseph's two sons would only be at most nine years old. There would be no way for them to already have a son and a grandson by the age of nine. In Numbers 26, these 70 people were actually the heads of the clans within the 12 tribes of Israel. All for the exceptions of Ohad, the son of Simeon, Ishva, the son of Asher, and the three descendants of Benjamin, Bakir, Gira, and Rosh. Everyone else became the head of a clan within the tribe. These sons that do not end up becoming the heads of clans within the tribe means that they went on the journey from Canaan to Egypt with Jacob, but their family line died out by Moses' time when he takes a census of the Israelites in Numbers 26. Therefore, the list of people that came into the land of Egypt in 46 would be a compiled list of descendants that would actually go down into Egypt with Jacob as well as those that would become the heads of clans inside the 12 tribes while living in Egypt. Remembering that Moses was the one that wrote the book of Genesis, he would be writing from the perspective that things had already happened, that the different heads of the clans would already be established within the tribes of Israel even though not all of the leaders of the clan were born when Jacob arrived in Egypt. This list doesn't include any other daughters, except Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and Sarah, the daughter of Asher, as well as any of the other wives or concubines of the sons. It also doesn't mention any of the male and female servants that Jacob would have to help him shepherd his flocks. And although it doesn't mention that he did take any of his servants with him, they were a large part of the household and how it was ran. However, in Genesis 46 verse 1, it says that Jacob did bring everything that he had. Therefore, the full number of people that actually traveled with Jacob is not known. Only his descendants that were born and those that would later on become the heads of clans are counted. As Jacob and his company made its way south to Egypt, he sent ahead of them Judah to Joseph, so that Joseph could show them the way to the land of Goshen. It's interesting that Jacob would send Judah, because usually it would be held for the eldest son to be sent by his father. However, in sending Judah to Joseph, he was showing that Judah was now to be considered the leader of the family when Jacob died. Judah was also sent to get instructions in which direction they should go, being as a guide for Jacob and his family. When hearing that his father and brothers were in the land of Goshen, on the eastern side of the Nile Delta, Joseph prepares his chariot that was given to him by the Pharaoh and heads north to greet his father. When Joseph and his father met for the first time in over 20 years, they fell on each other's neck and wept. In Genesis 46 verse 29, it is noted that when they began weeping, that it was a good while before anyone spoke. And when someone did speak, it was Jacob, saying that he was now ready to die because he was able to see the face of his son. 
No longer was he longing to see his thought-to-be-dead son, but now his life was restored to him. With finally being reunited with his family and brothers, Joseph then tells his brothers that he will be going back to Pharaoh to announce their arrival. He then tells them that he will inform the Pharaoh that his family are shepherds so that they can stay in the land of Goshen, as it was the best that Egypt had to offer for herds. Joseph then informs his brothers that if they were asked by the Pharaoh to tell him that they were shepherds and have always been since the time of their youth. Joseph plans to keep his family in the land of Goshen by having his brothers tell the Pharaoh that they were shepherds because shepherds were considered an abomination to the Egyptians. Although it isn't known for sure why the Egyptians considered shepherds as abominations, it has been suggested that because they were seen as second class to the Egyptians. Even though Joseph said that he would go tell the Pharaoh about his family arrival, he ended up bringing along with him five of his brothers, and later on he would bring Jacob before the Pharaoh. As Joseph thought he would do, the Pharaoh asked them what their occupation was, to which they replied that they were shepherds and asked the Pharaoh to settle in the land of Goshen. The Pharaoh then tells Joseph to give him the best of the land that Egypt had to offer. He then tells Joseph to place any man that he thought qualified for the job to be placed over Pharaoh's herds as well. After receiving the permission to be able to settle in the land of Egypt, Joseph then brings his father before the Pharaoh. When Jacob is before the Pharaoh, he blesses him, possibly as a greeting, a way to say thanks for his generosity, or both. The Pharaoh asks Jacob how old he was. Jacob replies saying that he was 130 and few and evil they have been as he has been under distress ever since the day that he left his father's house in fear of being killed by Esau. He then compares his fathers that lived almost 200 years old, saying that he won't attain the same age as they did. After getting his family settled into the land of Goshen, Joseph goes back to handle the rest of the country, as they were going to be still in a famine for another five more years. As the famine carried on, the people of Egypt spent all of their money on buying food. After the money was gone, the next year the Egyptians gave Joseph all of their livestock and trade for food. The year after that, the Egyptians realized that they had nothing to offer Joseph for food. The money was gone, as well as their livestock. So they decided to offer Joseph themselves along with their land. Therefore, in exchange for food, Joseph bought up all the land of Egypt for the Pharaoh and made the people servants. He would then move all of the people from the land and place them into different cities that held the supplies of food. As the famine began to end, Joseph would then give seed to the people so that they could plant and grow crops. Although the Pharaoh did own the land now, Joseph would allow for the people to farm it and charge the people one-fifth of the crops for using the land. With all of these arrangements that the people had made with Joseph, they were extremely grateful, as their lives were saved from the food that Joseph provided for them in exchange. However, this arrangement was not done for the priests of Egypt. They received an allowance of food from Pharaoh and were allowed to keep their land. After living in the land for 17 years, Jacob prepares himself to die at the age of 147. He calls Joseph to himself, asking him to make a promise to Jacob. Jacob asked Joseph to promise to him, by placing his hand under his thigh to bury Jacob in the land that Abraham and Sarah and his father Isaac were buried in. The placing of the hand under the thigh is the exact same promise that Abraham requested of his servant when getting a wife for his son Isaac. The word thigh here could mean loins, which could be connected to the promise of circumcision. 
Therefore Joseph could be placing his hand on his father's loins and promising on the circumcision to bury his father in the cave of Machpelah, where Jacob's father was buried. A little while later, it was told to Joseph that Jacob had fallen ill. So Joseph brought his two sons to Jacob, Manasseh and Ephraim. His sons couldn't be any older than 26, but they were both older than 17 for sure. Jacob then adopts Joseph's two sons as his own. This would mean that both Manasseh and Ephraim would receive an equal portion of an inheritance in the land of Canaan as the rest of Jacob's sons. This would give Joseph a double portion to that of his brothers. This was usually held for the oldest son, a double portion of the inheritance. Jacob then asked who the two with Joseph were, as he was going blind and was not able to see. Joseph then tells them that they are his two sons. Jacob then has them bow before him, so Joseph took them and placed Ephraim, the secondborn, to the left of Jacob. And Manasseh he pledged to Jacob's right hand, as he was the firstborn. However, Jacob purposely crossed his hands, placing his right hand on the younger brother and the left hand on the older brother, and then began to bless Joseph through his sons. In Jacob's blessing, he hints at the triune God. The first is the God in whom he and his fathers walked before. The next, Jacob refers to God as the shepherd that has watched him and continues to watch him and feed him on a daily basis. And lastly, Jacob refers to an angel, but not just a creator angel, but the angel of God that has redeemed him from evil. However, the word redeem is a present tense, meaning that the angel of God is continually redeeming him from evil. However, the word redeemed is a present tense, meaning that the angel of God is continually redeeming him from evil. Jacob prays that the God that he has personally known and experienced would bless Joseph's sons. However, while Jacob was blessing the two sons, Joseph noticed that Jacob had placed his hands on the wrong sons, which he was not happy about. Taking his father's hands and switching them, Joseph tells them that Manasseh is the firstborn, not Ephraim. But Jacob knows what he is doing and tells Joseph that though Manasseh would become a numerous tribe, his brother Ephraim would be even greater. Therefore, he placed the younger before the older. Jacob then blesses Joseph himself with a mountain ridge in the promised land that Jacob took with a sword and bow from the Amorites. This ridge would be a place for Joseph himself within the inheritance of his sons. Now the ridge that was given to Joseph is debated by many scholars. Some believe that Jacob is referring to Shechem because Jacob already owned property just outside the city as it was a place that Abraham and Isaac were buried. But Jacob didn't conquer this land at all. It could mean the victory that his sons Levi and Simeon had over the city but Jacob condemns his sons all those years later for attacking and plundering the city. Also, Jacob didn't possess the city, but actually left the city to go back to Bethel. On top of this, the inhabitants of Shechem were not the Amorites, they were the Horites. So what is Jacob referring to? Because in Joshua 24 verse 32, it says that the Israelites buried the bones of Joseph in the cave that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all buried in, in Shechem. Some thoughts are that after Shechem was taken by his sons, Jacob had to defend himself against the Amorites that had gathered themselves against him. This could be why the surrounding tribes were afraid to mess with Jacob. Other scholars believe that Jacob was prophesying about an event that would later take place and which his descendants would conquer the land from the Amorites around the city of Shechem. But after these things, Jacob tells his sons to gather all together that he may tell them of their inheritance in the promised land. He starts out with Reuben, 
saying that although he was his firstborn, he lost the rights of the firstborn son because he slept with his concubine. This would be the leadership of the tribes, which would be given a Judah, as well as a double portion, which Joseph would receive. The next is Simeon and Levi. Jacob condemns them for the violence against the city of Shechem, to which Jacob states that he had no part of. And because of this, both would be scattered among Israel. This would come true in that the Levites would not have any land to possess as their own. However, they would become a blessing because they would become the tribe of priests for Israel. Also, the descendants of Simeon would become the weakest tribe and not be given any land, but just some cities within the tribe of Judah. To Judah, Jacob gives the right to rule over his brothers. This would become evident when David and his sons would come to rule, and later on, Jesus himself would come from the descendants of Judah. Also, Judah is referred by Jacob as a lion and lioness that would grow into power. Closing out his blessing for Judah, Jacob says that his land would be bountiful in crops and that his descendants would step into prosperity. To Zebulun, Jacob said that he would be a place for ships. However, when the promised land was first divided up, his descendants would seem to not have any part next to the sea, especially when looking at a map of how the promised land was divided up. But there is extra biblical evidence that Zebulun actually did live not only on the Mediterranean Sea, but also on the Sea of Galilee. Jewish tradition has the tribe of Zebulun carrying banners that had pictures of a ship on a white background, indicating that they were a tribe that was connected to ships on the water. Other Jewish tradition says that Zebulun used to be a sailor and a fisherman during the summertime, and then during the winter he would come back and help the family by being a shepherd. Also, a Jewish historian named Josephus, who was also a leader of the Jewish army against the Romans in the First Jewish War, said that the tribe of Zebulun extended from the Sea of Galilee all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. A couple of reasons why today's map might not be completely correct in showing the land that was given to Zebulun is because in the beginning, the boundary between was always constantly changing. The line that was drawn between the tribes was from one landmark to another, oftentimes a city. However, many names of cities have not been discovered or their exact location has not been unearthed. Another thing that could cause some confusion is that the Israelites only used the four points of the compass, north, east, south, and west. Directions between these points were not ever mentioned, for example, northeast or southwest. With this in mind, it could very well have been that the tribe of Zebulun had a connection to the Mediterranean Sea. The same goes for the east border on the Sea of Galilee. On the east side, the tribe of Naphtali lives. However, Joshua only gives them the cities. This could allow for the tribe of Zebulun to live in small villages along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. For Issachar, Jacob said that he would see the land was fertile and settle in it, as the tribe saw the fertile land of the valley of Jezreel in Galilee. However, they would become comfortable with what they had and the tribe of Ishakar would not pursue to rule or to have any higher aspirations. Jacob then turned to Dan and said that he would become a judge as one of the tribes of Israel. As a son of a concubine, usually he would be seen as a secondary son, subpar to the sons that were born of the father's wife. Just like the concubine didn't hold the same status as a wife, however, here Jacob is giving Dan a portion in the land just like all the other sons. He also mentions that Dan would be like a serpent that bites the horse's heel, throwing the rider off. 
This could be referring to the way Dan would fight in the land of Canaan against the Canaanites, because the tribe did not have a very large army. In other words, it could be referring to the tribe of Dan using guerrilla warfare to attack their enemies. The next son was Gad, saying that he would be raided, but he would raid their enemies at their heels. As the tribe would settle on the east side of the Jordan River, they were exposed to many plunderers from the tribes in the east, but Gad would stop them and attack them back with the same amount of force. Asher would settle in the fertile lands next to the Mediterranean Sea and would become rich off the land. Naphtali, Jacob said, would be a doe that was free and would bear beautiful fawns. Not much is known about Naphtali and his descendants. Therefore, the meaning behind Jacob's words aren't really well known. It could mean that the tribe would have an easier lifestyle than the rest of the Israelites, that the tribe would be fruitful and abound in beauty, or that they would be a swift warrior tribe. The next would be Joseph. To him, Jacob actually blesses to become a tribe that is fruitful and multiplies to become a very large tribe that would have great strength against its enemies. It would also come into leadership eventually, as Judah would be associated with the southern kingdom and Joseph's two sons would become known for leading the northern kingdom. Lastly, it would be Benjamin. To him, Jacob said that he would be a ravenous wolf, devouring its prey in the morning and dividing the spoil in the evenings. This has regards to the descendants of Benjamin becoming one of the most warlike tribes of all Israel. In closing, Jacob then tells his sons to bury him in the land of Canaan with his father and grandfather. He also states that in the cave that Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebekah are, he also buried Leah there too. With that statement, Jacob breathed his last, dying at the age of 147. With the death of Jacob, Joseph weeps over him, and then his Egyptians. With the death of Jacob, Joseph weeps over him, and then has the Egyptians embalm him. It says in Genesis 50 verse 3 that it took 40 days for the embalming and that the Egyptians wept for 70. A normal time to embalm a body actually took 70 days. However, that was a time it took in later days when the capital had moved from Memphis, the capital of Egypt in Joseph's time, to Thebes. The bodies that were embalmed in Thebes are better preserved than those that are in Memphis. Therefore, it is thought that in Joseph's time they took 40 days to embalm a body, but that it wasn't until later in history that they started taking 70 days to embalm. The 70 days of mourning by the Egyptians, though, was the length of time that would be mourned for a pharaoh that had just died, or someone of royalty, whereas the Israelites normally mourned for only 30 days. Therefore, the way that Jacob was buried was that of someone of royal descent. What's interesting about the embalming is that it was only the Egyptians that did it. The reason they did it was because of their religion that was connected to Osiris and thinking that the body needed to be whole in order for the person to go into the afterlife. It would normally be done by the Egyptian priest. However, Joseph didn't have the priest do it, because it wasn't due to the need of a body going into the afterlife, but Joseph had his personal servants, who were physicians, do the embalming so that it had no connection to the Egyptian cult. The reason that Joseph had Jacob's body embalmed was because of the long journey that would be taken in order to bury Jacob in the land of Canaan not because of the Egyptian religious cult. After the 70 days of mourning, Joseph went to the Pharaoh, possibly because that morning people were not allowed in the presence of the Pharaoh, and asked to fulfill his promise to his father by burying him in the land of Canaan. 
The Pharaoh grants Joseph his wish and sends him to Canaan. It wasn't just the sons of Jacob that went though. In Genesis 50 verse 7, it says that all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of Pharaoh, the elders of the land of Egypt, chariots, and horsemen all went. It was such a large company of people that the Canaanites called it the morning of Egypt. They stopped at the threshing floor of Atad on the east side of the Jordan River and mourned there for seven days. After the seven days, the sons buried their father in the cave of Machpelah, which Abraham had bought. After the death of Jacob, Joseph's brothers feared that Joseph would repay them for the wrong that they had done to him decades before. So his brothers came before him saying that their father told them to say to Joseph to forgive them for what they had done. However, many Jewish scholars believe that Jacob never found out about Joseph being sold into slavery. Although that isn't known, Joseph comforts and tells his brothers that the thing that was meant for evil, God has used for good, and that he would provide for them and their families. Genesis ends with Joseph dying at the age of 110. It says that Joseph was able to live long enough to see his great-grandchildren. And as Joseph was about to die, he tells his brothers, intending for the message to be passed on to their descendants, that God would take them out of the land of Egypt and give them the land that was once promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And like his father, Joseph made them promise to carry his bones out of Egypt when they left for the land of milk and honey because he knew that God was faithful. With that, Joseph breathed his last and was embalmed and put inside of a coffin and then placed inside a room. He wouldn't be moved until many years later when the Israelites finally got to go home to their promised land. That concludes our journey through the book of Genesis. Although the next book in the Bible is Exodus, we're not going to do it next. The reason for this is because we're going to go through the Bible in chronological order, which means that the next book of the Bible is Job. No, just because it is in the middle of the Bible, after Esther and before Psalms, does that mean that it happened later in history. In reality, the events in Job happened before many of the events in Genesis. So join us next time in episode 16. It's not the book of Jobs, it's Job. Thanks for listening to the History of the Bible podcast. Go ahead and rate and review it and be sure to follow and subscribe to the show. For ways to give feedback or to let us know how this podcast has impacted you, check out the links in the show notes. Also, be sure to tell your friends and family. Thanks. Until next time, remember that you are loved, special, and worthwhile.